Uh, I see a lot of people investing in non-scalable startups, which have amazing idea, especially amazing technology, but basically zero customers. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Thomas, a warm welcome back to the second episode of the Swisspreneur Podcast. It's great to have you again. Hi, Sylvan. Thanks for hosting me. Today, we're going to talk about how to become a successful business angel in Switzerland. I think you're the perfect person to talk to about that topic. And I want to start with the common mistakes. So what are the common mistakes that you see people making when becoming a business angel? I think one mistake that a lot of people might fall into is that they accept the first deal that they get because they're so surprised that somebody wants uh, them to invest into a private company. And sometimes they even know the people because maybe it's a relative or um, a very good friend. And then they cannot really um, refuse to say no. And oh, I need more time to think about it. And yeah, sometimes they just fall victim because it's, it sounds good and they don't want to disappoint people. And then they more or less, um, at the same day, they say, okay, I'm going to help you and I'm going to give you some money. But that's also a bit how it started with you, right? With Spontact. Yes, I fell victim to the same mistake. <laughs> Even though, so, well, in the end, it was a lucky punch, I have to say. True. But it could have gone very badly. At the same time, also, I mean, in retrospect, uh, I didn't do proper due diligence. I didn't ask enough questions to fully understand everybody who was involved. Uh, I mean, in the end, it turned out great because it could sell quite quickly. And uh, uh, But basically, I had zero protection of my investment. I was just blindly trusting that they would do it. And uh, I also didn't get proper reporting, for example, and okay. stuff that in retrospect uh, could have been organized differently. Got it. Another thing that you mentioned in the prep call that we did together was the return, the focus on the exit, that there's also a mistake there. Can you elaborate a bit more on that topic? I mean, first of all, uh, investing is easy. Everybody can give somebody money. Yeah. You don't need to be, be an expert or do a lot of work for that. The hard part of investing in a startups is actually being able to sell the startup later and get returns for everybody, the founders and the investors. So investing should also come with return. Otherwise, it's not investing. Otherwise, it's maybe charity or just being nice or <laughs> donation. I mean, that's also great, uh, right. but then it should have a just cause. Um, if it's investing into a business, uh, it should eventually come with returns. Otherwise, it's not serious investing. So people starting to angel invest, they often don't think early enough about the potential exit and the return. That's the mistake. Or they don't think about in which way the startup will make money and why it would become um, a very valuable company. They maybe just like the idea and maybe they like the founders, but they haven't properly uh, thought through the business model mm -hmm. and how fast it can scale. Uh, I see a lot of people investing in non-scalable startups, which have amazing idea, especially amazing technology, but basically zero customers or no customers that would pay serious money. And if you do this, I mean, you, you work with interesting people, but in the end you finance a project and not a business. And then the project ends because the budget is used up and there's no paying customers, and then the thing dies. Yeah. And then you basically just have financed the project, but not built up a sustainable, fast-growing business. I think what many like uh, aspiring business angels have a hope there is that 
you invest in a team and if the idea doesn't work out, the team can pivot and do something else. But that's probably also a bit of a, a misunderstanding. I mean, I think the team is the most important factor because they execute the idea. Ideas are worthless if you don't execute them. Right. They, an idea doesn't have an impact unless it's realized into something concrete which touches people's lives. Now, if you invest in people, of course, I mean, you need to trust them that they can deliver what they promise. Mm -hmm. The thing is, of course, they have lots of different ideas, but if they cannot focus, if they jump around, if the, the first small obstacle comes, and then three months into the startup, they would do something completely different, maybe then they have the wrong investors because they cannot help it in your case. Or it does be that some of the founders suddenly cannot execute on the new idea. Maybe one of them can, but the rest cannot, and then the whole team might break apart. So I feel pivoting is okay within certain boundaries, mm -hmm. like try different go-to-market approaches, for example. It's great uh, as long as the same um, core, core model is, uh, as, as long as the core model stays the same. But pivoting into like 180 degrees in a different direction with different customer segments, uh, different challenges, that for me should be rather be a fresh start. Yeah, makes sense. Let's zoom out a bit and talk about the definition of a business angel. What is a business angel and what is it not? I prefer to use the term angel investor mm -hmm. to make sure that the person also invests money and not just give some advice and invest some time. Uh, because there are quite some people that name themselves business angels which uh, don't want to invest money. Uh, they, they say they work for sweat equity. So they, they basically are a coach or an advisor, and then they get some shares for that, but they've never put in a single Swiss franc. And so angel investor is more obvious that there's always money plus something more, which some people call smart money. Yeah. Now, what is a business angel? Basically, it could be any person that wants to support an entrepreneur. Hopefully, that person has some experience in being an entrepreneur themselves or um, being close to entrepreneurs. That would help. And in many cases, uh, that person might also have a great connection, uh, a business network to customers, which the startup eventually will need such that you can learn from the customers very early on and that you get the first customer thanks to the network of the angel investors much faster. Makes sense. And is this only working for like providing sweat equity and uh, not really investing themselves? Is that a red flag? I don't think it's a red flag. I just feel you have to be a little bit cautious uh, if you basically pay with shares. Uh, because these shares at the beginning maybe are not worth a lot, but maybe in five years from now, they are worth a lot. And then the question is always, will you continue working with that person or not? Is it just at the very beginning important the contribution that the person makes? Or will it also be important to have that person still part of the company in, in like five or ten years down the road? Right. And sometimes also this, uh, how much you get for, for how much you do is not very clear. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit hand wavy. And sometimes people give out a lot of shares for very little work. And then suddenly they want to bring in new people into the management. And then he looks at the capital table, who owns how much shares. And then he says, well, this person, he doesn't work here anymore. He worked the first three months. Now he owns like 10% of the company. Now what is his real contribution? And then the, the new guy gets 1% but need to do five years of full-time work at the low salary. How do you justify that? You, so, you can't, right? It's very hard. I mean, sometimes you can, but it needs to be like he really like made it such that we have big success. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, uh, it's overvalued or it's also it's not a long-term relationship. And it should be. It should be of great value and a long-term relationship. And if that is not, you have to justify later 
which makes it very hard, especially if you want to get great other people on board. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you spoke about the, the personal experience, either being an entrepreneur or close to entrepreneurs yourself. What are other things that you should have um, in order to become a business angel? I mean, it really helps is this network to potential customers or to experts from the field, such that you can bring in these people which the startup doesn't have in the core team, but really would need right now to do the next step. Mm-hmm. So the better you can activate people from your network um, in a way that it helps the startup, uh, the more valuable you are as a business angel. Yeah. Also, for example, helping um, find uh, professional investors, which would then do the next bigger rounds. That also is an interesting network uh, because most founders, sure. they don't have connections to the institutional investors or to VC funds uh, because why would they talk to them? They first need to build something. Yes. And if you have a portfolio with lots of startups and many of them went through uh, series A, B or C, these uh, later investment rounds where you have professional investors, then you can ready uh, basically cherry pick which investors you would bring into this deal such that when you need it, they already are ready to invest. That makes sense. And maybe also a quick differentiation. What's the, the difference between being a business angel and being a VC? Now, a VC invests somebody else's money. That's very simple to say because he gets paid for finding investments and managing it, whereas a business angel invests his very own money and uh, doesn't get paid for doing it. And most business angels are not professionals. They don't do this full-time. They do this as a hobby in addition to a a regular day job. Right. I think that's a a very good summary. And also talking about the motivation, from your perspective, what's the right motivation to become a business angel and what's the wrong motivation to become one? Maybe let's start with the wrong motivations. Some people believe that uh, because they read these uh, stories about the U.S. companies becoming unicorns and people apparently earn uh, multi-million to billions uh, from these deals, they believe you can get uh, quickly rich if you invest in the right startups. And that's normally not the case. It always takes a lot of work and effort to build it up. There's a lot of risk along the way. It takes years and not just uh, months. Uh, So if you want to get uh, rich quick, then maybe it's the wrong path to go down. Then you'd rather go to uh, play in the casino. (laughs) You also need to be lucky, but (laughs) maybe you hit the jackpot. Right. And with startups, it's always a lot of work involved. It's not just you go in and then you go out when you want. You cannot go out uh, the next day. That's another mistake people do. They believe you can um, go in and out in these deals anytime you want, but there's no market for selling startup shares as long as the startup hasn't proven it's really like uh, valuable and it's really a uh, good size. Mm-hmm. So that's the bad motivation. Uh, thinking you get the money back tomorrow and you get uh, rich very quick, that's very bad motivations. Also, if you want to control the founders because you're the money guy and they basically they need the money and then you misuse this power to tell them what they have to do. It's very, very uh, detrimental for a relationship with the founders. And in most cases, they will not like to work with such kind of money givers. Mm-hmm. That's three things I would avoid. Uh, and if you fall in this category, you want the power, you want uh, to get rich quick, and you want to get the money back tomorrow, or you cannot afford to lose the money. It's another mistake. Um, you need to be able to, to lose some investments completely because some startups, they will not survive. And if you cannot live with the fact that you will invest in a company which will not survive because then you can't sleep anymore or because you have to sell your house or whatever, yep. or you have to tell your wife and she doesn't like that, <laughs> then you rather should not become an angel investor. Right. And what's the right motivation on the other hand? 
So what's a good motivation? I feel, first of uh, all, you want to really work with entrepreneurs. You want to be part of their journey by helping them, but not by telling them what to do. So you basically you try to de-risk it, um, show them what's dangerous, and tell them, look, now you need to make a decision. It's your decision, but I tell you, these are options, this is dangerous, this is costly, whatever, but now you need to decide. So you can help them take the right decisions at the right moment. I think that's the most important role a business angel can do besides activating the network. Another motivation is you want to build a great product. You want to build the future. Basically, you see this is an amazing idea, great technology, a really cool team. And together with this money from investors, we can build a new service or new product, which maybe even I want to use. And so building the future for me is a great motivation. I see all these possibilities and I want them to become real. Mm-hmm. So you shape the future by doing that. That's a good motivation also. I like that a lot. There's also a, a great podcast out there by Naval Ravikant, the founder of AngelList. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the difference of being a founder operationally in the business and being a business angel or an investor. Yes. And I wonder just, you know, with your experience, you've seen both sides uh, of the table, basically. For you, what's like the, the biggest difference? What Naval basically says is being a founder is way more rewarding, but also way more exhausting something that you probably cannot do for the rest of your life. While being an investor is also possible to do part-time, as you just explained, as a business angel. And uh, you are a bit less rewarded because you're not so close to the topics on an operational level, but you can realize multiple ideas and support multiple teams. So how do you see that with your broad experience over the past years? If you are in a startup that is becoming successful, which means it grows like crazy, you hire lots of people, you extend your business, you go abroad. I mean, it means it, you're full in. You have your startup and you have nothing left and right of that. You cannot have three other side projects and yeah. it just doesn't work. So as a founder, you're full in as long as the startup is successful. If it's not successful, of course, then maybe you have time for other things, but then maybe you should even stop doing it. True. So as a founder, yes, you're very um, full in. You are at the front, you get the rewards, but you also get the negative um, sides of it, of course. And of course, you're moving things. So it's, it's a very um, tangible business. You see the impact firsthand. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Uh, but it also means that, that you're basically 24-7 in this job. You cannot quit, not even for the weekend. You will continue thinking about it, even if you're not at the workplace. You should try to really come to rest at some point of time, maybe even take a vacation. Some founders have real troubles stepping out of the business just for one day. They cannot put the cell phone away. They cannot stop the emails. They cannot not think about the business. And this can also become bad for your health if you cannot let loose for just a few hours or a few days. Mm-hmm. That's basically you really fall in and you're engaged in it until hopefully um, it, it has the big success. As an investor, you can every day decide how much do I spend time with this startup versus the other because there's no clear obligation how much time you need to spend. Of course, when you're a board member, then you have to make sure that the formalities are done right, the board meetings take place, but that's maybe four to six times a year. Then you have to do your job. But as an investor, uh, basically, you're free to do whatever you want today. You can also do it tomorrow. I can also wait two weeks. Uh, in the end, you're much more free to pick and choose where you spend time on. If you don't like a startup that much anymore, you spend more time with the others that you see uh, see a better fit mm-hmm. or where you feel you can really move the needle towards success. So for me, every day I can re-decide which of my portfolio companies I want to help more and which ones I want to help less. And I don't need to be fearful that if I 
yeah, don't work for this one anymore, we just completely uh, fail because there's still people uh, that do it as a day job. True. So now let's look a bit more at the investment process and also at the starting point. You also mentioned money as an important part of being an, a business angel or how you call it, angel investor. Mm -hmm. So how much money should you have you know, set aside to start investing in startups? I mean, setting money aside, that's a, a weird idea because money should always uh, be working somehow. It shouldn't just be set aside and put right. under your pillow. Uh, but in the end, you need to calculate how much money you can afford to lose. Because if you cannot afford to lose the money you invest, then you will sleep very badly. Yeah. And some people say, look, I earn so much. And if I take away from my salary so much every year, I can invest maybe 20,000 every year. Mm -hmm. You don't need to put the money aside for the next five years, but you should maybe plan ahead that you would do one startup each year for five years. So you have at least a little bit of a portfolio. Now, at SIGTIC, we say um, if you go into one deal, you need to bring at least 20,000. If you want to invest just 5,000, it's the wrong club. Yeah. Uh, most people now do 30,000 to 50,000 per deal, mm -hmm. but they have more stakes, they have less startups in their portfolio, they have more time to uh, take care of those where they are actually having stakes, which also means it's a more intense relationship. Now, we also have people that come to us and say, we have, I have 1 million and I want to have 20 startup investments. So where do I start? <laughs> right. And I always tell them, look, don't invest the one million in the first year, because in the first two years, you learn the most. You will learn which startups work, which founders you can trust, um, where you can add real value. And if you basically do everything in the first year where you know the little, uh, uh, no, not the least of, uh, of um, the whole angel investing thing, mm -hmm. then you make the most and the baddest the worst mistakes, yeah. So basically, you should really learn for the first two years, do maybe one or two investments, and then you can go full in and do maybe three, four, five. So I say it's a learning curve. And it's not like the stock market, you cannot go out. Once you're in, you're in. Right. So, that, yes, you should learn difference. first. A slow start. And in the end, let's make sure you build up a portfolio. I always say you should maybe have about 10, 10 plus investments, mm -hmm. but it can take you five to 10 years to build the portfolio. Okay. Now, if you say per investment, you want to invest 50,000 and you do 10 startups, you would mean eventually you invest half a million. Yeah. If you feel it's too much, then of course you can also do 20,000 and then it's much less. Yeah. I would not invest a few thousand here and there because there's quite some overhead with startup investments. Right. Yeah, I think these are good numbers to, to keep in mind when going down that path. And the, the next question is basically, okay, now you decide about how much money you can lose. So therefore you can invest. Where and how do you actually get in touch with startups? How do you get a deal flow? I mean, you can tell everybody that you know that you look for investments. And I'm mm -hmm. sure if you live in one of the biggest cities in Switzerland, you will find someone who would pitch your startup. Now, of course, there's also events where you can go to, uh, where startups are on stage or where startups get awards. Uh, or you can reach on a community like an um, angel investor club. And there, basically, you have the deal flow in a database online. Plus, you have also events where you see the startups and where you can connect to them. Yeah. Of course, nowadays, um, due to the pandemic, uh, some people prefer online uh, dating uh, through <laughs> video conferencing. Um, but, I mean, ev eventually, it will be a combination of both physical um, contacts and, and, and virtual contacts. And you mentioned business angel clubs, also, you know, one that you're running with SIGTIC. How can you compare to being part of a business angel club versus going alone and finding your own deal flow? What are the pros and cons of both ways? 
I mean, if you do it alone, you have a lot of work because you need to look at every single case and then cherry pick which one you really like. And then if you do due diligence, you do it on your own and you only have your very specific view on it. Now, if you join a community, which basically is a business angel club, a community of investors, mm-hmm. you can ask others which look at the same deal at the same time and then you can invest as a group, which means you have a much stronger business network because everybody brings a piece of the network. You also have more money for a follow-on round uh, because you have other people in the boat which uh, also liked it like you did. And you might also build up some friendship with like-minded people that are able uh, to invest and also like the startup scene. So it's really you get this community which saves you a lot of time and work and brings you additional uh, competences and additional network into the game. Are there also any pros of doing it alone? I mean, the biggest pro is you're much faster especially if you invest completely alone, then you don't need to ask anyone, you don't need to synchronize, you don't need to spread information. Uh, I mean, there are people where there's one business angel, one founder, and that's it, at least at the beginning. Uh, but if you want to grow this for later, you still most likely will ha- need to have more people than just one founder and one investor. And sometimes you find out a little too late that none of them is capable of building teams, and then it will be hard. So personally, I enjoy a lot to invest with others, um, even if I have to basically share the deal. But I felt if I have more people on the deal, um, I see many more things which I wouldn't see if I go on it alone. Makes sense. And also to decide where you actually go in, um, part of that is your investment focus. I think you uh, wrote that out on your personal website very well. How do you determine and find your own investment focus? What makes sense for a, a new aspiring business angel? For me, it was obvious I want to do something with data and software, uh, which basically I've done uh, before in my professional life because I really saw the big opportunities. I saw how you could easily make a great idea real into a product. And uh, because I've built several software products uh, in the past, I can really um, help uh, accelerate the process from idea to first customer. Mm -hmm. So I always look for startups that I understand what they do where I like the people that um, that execute on it, mostly the founders. And then I also look whether I can make a contribution uh, to make it cheaper, faster, better, uh, such that if, if I'm part of the deal, uh, people will really feel the impact. Uh, and if I do that, it basically means uh, the money I invest will get more value faster because I can help to de-risk the startup. I can help to make it grow faster. Even if I'm not in the day business, if I help them make the right decision at the right moment, uh, get the right people into the team when they need them, because I have a network where I can sometimes activate people and then really get that thing at the right moment into the other team. Mm-hmm. For example, also there's cross-fertilization. For example, quite some people from Contavista and I work for another startup of mine. They decided to, to switch startups because they wanted to go to a smaller startup. Mm-hmm. And all this know-how, which they have learned on the journey with Contavista, they can now apply to the other growth story. And that, that's really tremendous uh, value because they've done it right here and they can do it again. And so, yeah, that's how I pick it. Can I make my own contribution? Do I understand the case? And do I like to work with the founders? Plus, is this a real business potential, which is sizable? Because if there's no business, then it's just a project. And I don't want to invest in a project. I want to invest into a real business. I, I really like that statement. I think that's very applicable. But then how do you actually evaluate the startup? You know, once you get the deal flow, you have many startups that you can choose from, how do you make your choice? How do you evaluate that deal for and select the right companies? 
so nowadays, a lot of these startup deal flow goes through the Swiss ICT Investor Club, SIGTIC, which basically have two checks. One is um, a formal check. For example, they only invest into companies which have the domicile in Switzerland, or if they mm-hmm. have not incorporated, that they will incorporate here, just to make sure that uh, the legal system is known and the tax implications are known and the whole setup is clear. Uh, at the same time, it needs to be scalable, which means they should have an idea how they could make 5 million revenues in five years from now. So they need to have a real product, which we can sell. And of course, they also need to make sure that uh, it's a technology-based uh, solution, which uh, enables um, later the, the, the big growth. That's, that's the hard criteria. And then it goes into a jury, which is uh, very seasoned investors. Many of them had exits or even uh, built up their own companies. Mm-hmm. And there they look mostly at the team potential, which uh, they look at the CVs, what have they done before. Then they try to understand, can they deliver on that? Are they the right people? Do they have missing skills in the team? For example, if everybody's only a programmer, they have no finance guy, no business developer, uh, no guy who can lead others, maybe it's an incomplete team. And so that, of course, uh, is not a perfect thing if it's too much one-sided. So they look at who is missing and whether they could complement the team before they would invest. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they look at the market, where they want to go in. Is this a a small market? Is it a growing market? Where is it located? how, how big could they really get? What's the competition out there? So what's the market potential, basically, or business potential for this specific offering? So once the team potential and the business potential are, are like rated very highly because there's a gigantic business potential and the team really could deliver, then there's other factors, for example, the quality of the documents and the communication that you have with the team. Like when you ask them questions, do you get something to the point or is it just... They forget about your question, never come back, or would they really like to take it serious if you have some critics that they would say, oh, that's an interesting point, uh, maybe we can consider that, or maybe we have a better answer, or we need to explain you better. So how do they deal with um, challenges and, and critical situations and uh, yeah, negative feedback? So and this also needs to be on a good level, because otherwise, if the founders always know everything best, they will not learn on a journey. And always say, if you stop learning, most likely you have already lost, unless you're the super genius guy that knows everything. But it's very rare to encounter such people. And uh, so you make more mistakes if you can't learn. Um, And there's some red flags, of course, for example, if the business is illegal because you need a license for it and they cannot get it for whatever reason, or it's uh, unethical, um, or they, they have a business model which... Uh, basically, uh, it's, it's obvious that it will uh, not work out um, for the long run, only the short run. Um, these things, uh, or if people have a criminal record, for example, uh, right. then you, you don't really want to engage. Do you actively check for that? Do you like uh, order uh, an official register to check whether they have a criminal record? Yes, we asked that from the founders and okay. also whether they are indebted. Yeah. Um, in Switzerland, it's quite easy. In other countries, it's much harder to get that. But as, right. we, as I invest in Switzerland, I do these checks, yes. Nice. Uh, I mean, I want to know whether they have a clean history, and if not, uh, they can maybe explain what happened and why. Um, but I want to know that upfront before I engage. And I mean, some of them, we, we got millions of, of funding, and, and if you know the guy's crook, uh, or you could have known, but you didn't check, then it's yep. a problem. Absolutely. And I mean, there are some people out there which uh, try to get money and then just run away. Yeah, that's right. And you don't want to engage with them, of course. No, absolutely. And others, they normally don't have an issue if you ask them what's the criminal record. I mean, I had one, one time uh, a person that had a criminal record, but he was just he was uh, driving with alcohol and stuff. And I mean, yes, that's bad. But maybe as a founder, he's still totally valid. So 
Right. I mean, you can justify six. Uh, it's not a complete red flag if there's something showing up. Yeah, but if it shows up, there needs to be a, a good explanation for it. Yes. So what you just talked about now is already a bit of a mix between, you know, assessing and evaluating the deal flow, but also sounds like part of the due diligence that you do. So in early stage investing, due diligence is also often used, but what does that actually mean? Like, what is part of a due diligence at an early stage? What do you do and check there besides criminal records, for example? I mean, you look at all the contracts, for example, which financial which have financial implications. For example, do the founders have an employment agreement? Yep. Because if not, then the intellectual property, which means everything they create, the software they write, would not belong to the startup. Yep. So that's one thing I check. Um, yeah, who has created which valuable assets for the company, and whether they really belong to the company? Like, do they have trademarks? Do they have domain names? Who owns them? Do they have written software? Do they have, um, have, do they have data that is very important for them? So all the assets that they have and understand you know, where they got them from and how they will be built on them. And then, of course, the team. We want to look who's already in the team. If they had uh, special agreements with advisors, uh, you want to know what the promises were they made, whether they have financial implications on the round, um, who owns how much shares, for example. Mm -hmm. So who has really um, um, the most voting rights? It's very important because sometimes there are three founders. One of them owns 90% of the company. The other is like a little bit of the rest. Yeah. But it's not really equal founders then because one guy can basically decide everything without even asking the others. True. And then the question is, does the team feel comfortable with this situation or not? Yeah. And if not, then maybe they'll change it before they get investors on board. And it's easier to change at the beginning than later. Yeah. So that, that's a few things I look at. Of course, I also want to understand if, it's a, if the technology is a key thing, mm. whether it actually works. If they have a working prototype, I want to see it. Yeah. It should show me the software, not just talk about it and show me nice slides. I want to try it out uh, and really understand how it works and whether it's really superior because some people say it's amazing, but they don't know what the state of the art is abroad. True. And sometimes they don't even know competition, unfortunately. And then they say, this is all new and great because it's from me. I say, yes, but you know, these other guys from UK and USA, they have built something for the last five years, which looks slightly better. Did you check it out? And they don't even know the name. Then I say, okay, now let's do some exploratory work, some research, and then you can come back and tell me how good this thing is compared to the others. And if it's then not better, then maybe it needs to improve it first. Right. Yeah, I think these are very good points to check very well very well, and good advice. Now, when you actually do invest, can you walk us through the investment process and how that looks like? I think, you know, for somebody who hears that for the first time, that's like the big black box. What happens in the actual investment process? How does that look like? So basically, there's a first contact. So you learn about a startup. Um, normally, you get um, a documentation. Normally, it's called a pitch deck, which is some slides. Mm -hmm. If you do it through an um, investor club, in many cases, you get maybe a fact sheet in addition to that, which gives you very specific um, answers to the most relevant questions about the team and the business model and so on. Based on that, you decide whether you're interested to move on with this or not. So if you think, oh, it makes sense, I uh, want to look at it more deeply, then normally there will be a meeting with the team, whether it's virtual or physical, up to the investor. Mm -hmm. And then there you will ask lots of questions, get to know the team a little better, see how the team um, functions together, if there's more than one founder, uh, also see whether they can answer your, your questions. And after this meeting, if people still feel they want to move forward, then it's time to, to start about uh, 
coming up with a proposal on how much money they need, how much you would get for the, the investment. Normally you get shares. In, in a few cases, uh, you get the convertible note, which is basically a um, debt financing, which later converts into shares. It's just um, basically pushing it into the future until you get shares. But most investors here, they prefer shares straight away. Uh, because um, from the legislation in Switzerland, you get some very specific rights if you have shares, whereas if you only give money in the form of debt, you don't have these rights. One of the rights being you can go to the General Assembly, you get certain information about financials, uh, you have certain rights if uh, they change things at the company. For example, they change the company purpose and stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have shares, you are not even asked. So that's True. people want certain rights, which, um, you know, which shares you have them and with debt financing you don't. So basically, yeah, you, met, you, you met them, uh, you saw the documentations, you met them, and now you want to move forward, which means you go into negotiations about how much you get for investment. And that's called a term sheet. Mm-hmm. A term sheet basically is on, on a few pages outlining what are the rights and obligations of founders and the company and uh, the investors, and uh, what is the, the value of a single share, and how much money they want to collect in this round. And once you have agreed on that, then you go into due diligence, uh, sometimes even in parallel with the term sheet, which means you look at what I just said, look at uh, what do they really have, um, whether all the contracts are in order, whether they have a good solid basis, and uh, all risks which are there are known, such that you get the complete pictures of the assets and the risks and, and the team and the business. And if this is all fine, then basically you make an investment contract and... Uh, then you eventually go to the notary and um, issue new share capital and get uh, yeah, the shares for the money. And you then hopefully the it works out really good. I mean, normally yeah. in combination with this investment, there's the shareholders agreement, which mm-hmm. basically gives the rights and obligations of the shareholders, which normally the founders are also shareholders as well as the investors. And because the founders have the majority mm-hmm. of the shares, they could basically take decisions on their own. If they have more than 50%, most of the things in the company, they could decide on their own. Now, if you have your money in, uh, but you only have very little shares, maybe you want to still have a possibility to be heard in certain situations or have some special rights to prevent, for example, that they move abroad or they change the business purpose, even though you don't have enough votes to prevent that. Yep. You have a contract among shareholders to prevent that. So that's like minority protection um, rights, um, which are very important for especially early stage investors. Because otherwise, you just basically have to hope that they're nice to you, but you cannot do anything if they're not, oh. or if they don't stick to the plan. Now, with the general agreement, uh, at least the um, thing is written down, so it's obvious what the intention was. And if people um, don't adhere to it, uh, sometimes there's a, there's a fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they cannot remediate it, then they have to pay the fine. And most of the founders don't want to pay fines, of course. True. And I mean, if everybody pays by the book, then you wouldn't need it. But sometimes there's deviations where it's important that it's written down what uh, what should be done, and it's it's then also clear that it's a deviation. We know interruptions are rude, so we'll make it quick. The more positive ratings we have, the more people we can reach. So if you want to hear more from the Swisspreneur team, give our show a rating on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute. Uh, these documents like the term sheet, but also the shareholder agreement and maybe also the, 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 the legal parts for actually founding the company or getting the share purchase agreement done. 
where do you actually get these documents from? Do you always need a lawyer or are there any good resources that you can recommend with templates that you could use and adapt to your, to your company? I mean, for Switzerland, there's uh, free templates uh, for um, term sheets and shareholder agreements and uh, also investment agreements, mm -hmm. which you can download from uh, the SECO, uh, which is the, an association of private equity investors, SECA. Um, you can get them for free. Um, if you need advice and consulting, of course, uh, there's a couple of startup lawyers um, which have helped other startups uh, before, and uh, they will also, of course, provide their own templates and then adjust it. So, I mean, you, you will find them once you talk to startups. Um, some of these uh, do a lot of deals. They also sell companies later. Right. I would definitely go to a, a law firm which has done startup deals in the past, so you know that they understand uh, engagement you don't need to start from scratch right it's also cheaper if they already have templates of course absolutely are there any specific law firms that you would recommend that you've worked with in in the past i mean we have some which are also partners of Sigtic. they're on the website i mean they all do really great work they know exactly what uh, startups need and what they do uh, giving specific names uh, it depends a lot on what you need some of them are really great uh, creating employee incentive plans others are great uh, doing the term sheet and the shareholders agreements others they help you with m and it depends on your specific need, which, which one is the right one. Okay. But you can always ask me privately, of course. Perfect. And now you walked us through the investment process, but how long does that actually take from first contact until the investment is closed approximately? The fastest investment I was part of took 14 days from first meeting the founders until having wow. more than a million in the bank. That's super fast. But it only was possible because the founder was very well prepared. He had already a proposal for a term sheet. He already had a so-called data room with all the documents for due diligence set up. Already had a question and answer sheet prepared. So basically everything that normally investors need to know, he basically could present the first day. And then nice. we just had three meetings and we agreed on the terms and then money was paid in and that was it. Um, that was the fastest one. The slowest one was nine months, but that was mostly because the founder wasn't really sure how much money he wants to get. Mm -hmm. And he had to talk to lots and lots of other startups to understand whether it's the right decision to, to have so many investors or less investors. And it took him a lot of um, yeah, cycles to find out what he really wants. Yeah. But eventually um, it worked out. We invested and uh, 15 months later, we could sell the company abroad. Wow. Which was pretty amazing for him and also for us. <laughs> and uh, I didn't ex expect that, but he was really like the cautious guy that wanted to really check everything before he would decide. Yeah. It's always on both sides. If the founders are not ready or if on the angel investor side, there's no um, person that goes into the lead and coordinates everything, mm -hmm. it can be very slow uh, because nobody wants to do the first step and really uh, negotiate the deal. And uh, we hope to, to facilitate that um, by educating uh, angel investors and give them uh, the templates and give them uh, some education such that they feel more comfortable to, to lead the deal. Right. You just touched on another important topic that we already addressed briefly before with advisors not having a messed up cap table. So how many investors should you look for when you do the first round with uh, business angels or angel investors? Is there a right number or a number that is too high where you have actually too many investors from your perspective? It depends a lot on the type of investors. If uh, investors are extremely active and very verbous and need to know everything from the founder personally, mm -hmm. it's bad to have too many investors because then there's still too much time from the founders. Yeah. So normally I, I tell the starter the best thing is you have too many investors that want to get in, then you can increase uh, the minimum investment per investor. 
And then you can also ask for more because they invested more. They want to remake this as a success, which means they also give you more time. So personally, I prefer to have smaller teams, like less than 10 investors in the, in the seed investment stage. I have seen deals with 100 angel investors on one deal, which personally wow. I feel is too much investor relations uh, compared to doing startup work. Yep. Um, but it has happened, especially uh, with other angel clubs, which have much smaller ticket sizes, uh, investment ticket sizes than, uh, than for example, Sigtik has. Mm-hmm. So personally, I feel it should be less than 10 investors in the first, in the first uh, seed investment stage. And later on, it depends a lot on whether you have investors which can bring you money again, which means you don't have additional investors then, or if you go with um, professional investors, uh, which will bring you more money and it's just one more investor for that. That makes so sense. Personally, I feel having too many, too tiny investors makes everything quite slow and complicated. And yeah, I personally prefer to work with people that know each other. Also, the investors should know each other, such that you, mm-hmm. in the end, you really have a working team. It's not just some anonymous investor from somewhere which you have never met. Yeah. Uh, personally, especially if you need to take um, hard decisions, like you pivot or you need to whatever dismiss some people of the company to restructure it, or you need to re-emergency, like get some more funding from existing investors. If you need to brief 50 people first, I mean, it takes you ages. Yeah. And if you only need to brief five people, you can even have them in the same room or in the same video conference. It's much easier to take uh, hard decisions faster. Yeah. So here, the smaller your investor base is, the, the faster you can act basically as a startup to a certain degree. Totally. I mean, we come to this, we had three angel investors plus one corporate investor yeah. and uh, I mean we really at any time we needed something within a few days everybody was on the same page and uh, we had a decision yeah, uh, also signing paperwork if you have 50 signatures which you need yeah. to collect I mean good luck yeah that's like a full-time job for a week or so then <laughs> yeah and then you need to check all the documents and everything and some yeah. people will be on vacation and some people are abroad and it can take you months to collect a few signatures yep you don't want that not as a startup <laughs> yeah you also talked about, you know, the advantages, like being a good sparring partner and helping the founders making the right decision, but also opening your network and really supporting the company. I want to know more about how you then actually actively support your investments after the, the process has closed. Mm-hmm. Some investors, they take a board seat uh, at the startup that they invested in. Um, is that something that is commonly done across business angels? So, yes, I really recommend that at least one of the investors is also in the board. I also did it myself more than 10 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, because especially in the first few years, when uh, when uh, founders which have never done board work, for example, because it's the first company ever, uh, it's always good to have at least one more seasoned person in the board who knows uh, what the board has to do and shouldn't miss out. Yes. Also helps with financials, maybe also gives credibility for investment rounds if there's a more senior guy in the board, especially if the team is extremely young and has never had a company before. Oh. Uh, so in almost all cases where Sigtik invested last year, we had 51 investments. And if it was not a follow-on round, in almost all of them, one of the investors from the group uh, became a board member, uh, which really helps the startup to do things right at the beginning. Um, it's not a necessity. You can also do without, of course, especially if you have other great board people which are also a little more experienced than the mm-hmm. founders. But I would not recommend if only the founders are at the same time management and board because then you don't have a split between strategy and execution. Right. And, and for me, being in the board also means more responsibility. In Switzerland, you're privately liable with your personal money if something yes. goes wrong, like if they don't pay social security or taxes. 
and the company goes bankrupt, you pay out of pocket as a board member, yep. which means you should really be aware of whether it's in good shape or not and whether they pay <laughs> these things which they have to. Um, so there's a personal risk involved, right? which also means you should do it diligently. Yeah. Now, that's just one side. This means keeping the house in order. So when I'm in the board, I make sure that they are super ready for the next due diligence by a professional investor because everything is documented in the way it has to be and uh, important things, the formalities have not been uh, forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you don't do that, then the next investor will say, look, this is a mess. I mean, I don't even know where your sure. contracts are and uh, I have no clue what is really like uh, your financials. And uh, if you have such a mess, you cannot do a, a next financing round. But that's just keeping the house in order. But it's a necessity. Without that, you will not do a next, a next round. Mm-hmm. Coming back to helping the startups, I think it's really cross-fertilization. I have a lot of startups which are now a little bit older, which can help the younger ones. And then know the phases they went through. For example, opening your first office abroad. Which questions do you need to answer? Which people do you send there? How much money do you need for that? What's the good market entry strategy? Which investor you want to get for this next expansion step? Very important questions, very hard to answer. But uh, given I have some of my portfolio companies which went through that and successfully uh, entered uh, another market, they cannot talk to each other. So I connect them because I know they know it and they need it. And that's that's part of the network I can bring. Or I can ask these questions uh, at the right time such that people will be ready when they need the answer. I think that's incredibly valuable for the, the startups to, to really have this access and this know-how that you can share there. That's the hope that you make their journey easier and that you point out very important things that they, they should not neglect. Even though they might be too busy with the day business and don't want to deal with other things, at least they should be aware of certain, certain important uh, steps which they will run, run into. Also, for example, if right. the team grows um, beyond like 30, 20, 30 people, mm-hmm. you suddenly need... A, different type of employees which are working just internally. They, they don't program on the product or run to the customer. No, they just try to keep it organized. Yeah. And these, these steps people are not so aware of if you do it for the very first time. Right. You also said in the first episode that you have more than 30 uh, angel investments done so far. How do you manage your portfolio and also split your time across these different companies? I mean, it depends on how you count them. I have more than 20 direct investments and another more than 40 indirect ones through like um, acceleration programs or funds. Mm-hmm. Now, I mostly work with them where I have direct investments, of course. And uh, of course, with those where I'm in the board, I work, work most intensely. Because right. as I said, in the board, you have special responsibilities. And there it depends a lot on the phase, uh, especially at the very beginning, the first two years. It's extremely intense to exchange. Uh, normally, I meet them or um, have exchanged at least once or even more uh, than once a month. And sometimes they, I do workshops with them on very specific subjects, like should we do a patent or not? Mm-hmm. It's a question that comes up, especially with hardware companies, but sometimes also with software companies. And uh, then I try to help them answer this question whenever they need it. Or you're hiring a new senior management guy. Uh, how do you do that? Uh, how do you make sure that he will stay once you hire him? Um, these things. Um, so there's lots of topics where I feel I can jump in. So normally I tell the startup that's the, the 10 things I could help you with, and you tell me when it's the right moment. And with other things, I just come and say, look, you should really talk to this guy because now we, before you go abroad, you should learn what he learned. Yep. And don't do the same mistakes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so it's much cheaper to have other people do the mistakes and then learn from them than do all the mistakes yourself. Um, and you get the 
better idea on what the challenges are if you talk to people that did it. So that, that's basically what I can add. So yeah, I connect the dots. I bring in these topics where I'm uh, uh, really helping in a way that they have a better understanding of the problem. And hopefully then they can decide um, in a way that uh, they reach a better decision that hopefully will be sustainable. Yeah, makes sense. And you also said in the beginning, you need to be willing to lose money, the money that you invest into the companies. Mm -hmm. So let's also talk about that part when that happens. What yes. do you do if things don't work out with your investment? I mean, we had a case when I invested and uh, they were very dependent um, on, on one large um, data provider. And the data provider suddenly realized that there's a lot of potential in that data. And then they first made it very hard to access the data and then they changed the terms and then made it basically impossible for others to monetize it. Yeah. And then we knew basically it was game over. But the founder didn't want to believe it and he tried to work around it in lots mm -hmm. of different ways. And I told him, look, I mean, <laughs> take your time to experiment. But I, I think basically the business case is over. And then it took him almost a year to realize that it's really over because everybody wow. left from the team and he was the only one left and... I really told him, look, I mean, it's okay, you can pull the block, I will not beat you up, I'm not, <laughs> not that guy. <laughs> he was so afraid, because it was his only thing, that uh, he would lose everything, including all the friendship and everything was built up. Yeah. Um, I said, look, I mean, you have to decide when it's time to pull the block, but I, I, I feel we cannot revive a dead horse. <laughs> and you're, you're trying to, to ride a dead horse, you know. <laughs> and then in the end, he actually you know, pulled the block and then invited him to a shutdown dinner. And he was very afraid because he thought that at this dinner, I would like tell him all the bad things. <laughs> but we had a really good dinner in the end. <laughs> and he was totally relieved that uh, I didn't beat him up. <laughs> Even though I don't know why he would have this idea. But some, somehow he was so afraid that uh, because he lost everything, it was too bad. Sure. And for me, it was obvious. I mean, it was one of the startups I knew was a really high risk. I knew we were totally depending on this data provider. Mm -hmm. And of course, it just didn't work out. And I realized a year earlier than he, so I had one year to basically <laughs> try to forget about uh, the lost money. <laughs> uh, but in the end, I mean, yeah, it was, it's the normal case. And yeah, these things happen and you need to accept them and you, you should not regret it too much. True. Are there any like safety nets or security measurements that you put into place when you do an investment? I mean, one thing is the shareholders agreement to get uh, certain rights. For example, if you shut down the company, there's still money left. That first investors get paid out before the founders get paid out. Right. Just because the, the investors put in the money and if they don't execute the mission, the money was for the mission, but it wasn't executed, then yeah. why it's, it's, it's fair that it goes back to the investors. Yeah. And that's the thing where you need a shareholders agreement for, or so-called preference shares. Uh, which you can also put into the articles and the commercial register just to make sure that, for example, you're in a wind down, uh, you don't lose everything and they just run away with your money without having completed the mission. Yeah. So that's called liquidation preference, uh, which I feel is very important because it also aligns the risk. Your money is, is in at 100% risk from the first day you invest and the founders, they invest their time, but gradually, not at once. True. And if they don't continue, then... Yeah, maybe they shouldn't take and run. <laughs> Let's also talk about the exit scenario. So if the plan actually does work out, um, you were part of a few very fast exits within mm -hmm. a few months or even just a handful of years. So how likely is an exit actually now across all your portfolio? How likely is an exit as a business angel in Switzerland? Maybe we have to first talk about what an exit means. 
I mean, the classical exit is the whole startup gets sold or goes mm-hmm. to the stock market. Being sold normally means that um, there's a company which acquires um, either the, the whole company or just um, the core of the, the company, which means like all the assets. That's called a trade sale. So there's different types of exits. Now, there's another type of exit, which basically is only a partial exit, for example, for investors. Some investors get paid out, but others stay in. Uh, and this also happens actually the most frequent type of exit in Switzerland where the angel investors get bought out by later larger investors. So they want to get more shares, but there's not more shares available because the founders don't need more money. And then they buy out existing investors. It's also called a secondary transaction. And now this is actually quite good because angels that can help the most in the first few years and suddenly such a big round happens... Then it can sell the shares and then go back in at the early stage with other companies where they can help the most. And uh, that's the, the, the most classical type of exit. And uh, I also had four full exits where I could sell the full company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had three uh, partial exits so far where I could sell basically within a secondary um, um, share transaction. Now, if it's a full exit, it's, of course, a different scenario because suddenly you have a new owner, uh, the board will change. Uh, we come to Vista, for example, I, I was in the board. I had to leave the board to facilitate uh, uh, the acquiring process. And then people from the acquirer would come into the board to have the majority in the board. So they could decide in the board, basically. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're also majority shareholders afterwards. Uh, that's, that's how it goes. Uh, so that's, that changes a lot of things also with how are founders incentivized, uh, will they stay or not. Um, many companies that acquire a company, they will make an incentive plan for the key people to make sure they stay. And normally it's a cash bonus plan. So if you stay, you get the nice bonus if you uh, increase the business value. You don't get shares because uh, they don't want to give you shares anymore. They just bought them. <laughs> and that's why they normally give you a, a cash bonus or a long-term incentive plan, which over several years you get some paybacks if the business goes well. Mm-hmm. And that's an important step. You would change from a share-based incentive to a cash-based incentive. And not everybody likes this because it's a very different way of um, how you feel part of the company. If you have shares, you can vote, you see all the financial servicing. If you only have the cash part, basically you can see you don't know nothing about the company financials and you cannot vote, you cannot even go to the general assembly anymore. Basically, somebody else decides and you just need to execute. So, And this mindset change uh, yeah, can be difficult for a company culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, can also be difficult for the founders. Many founders, they, they want to leave the company when it's sold because they rather want to be their own boss and not have somebody else as a boss. Right. So that's why there it's a lot of culture uh, and value things which come up and you need to be really aware of what it means for, for, for specific people. Most investors, they should get paid out and then you're out of the game. But I mean, sometimes you still get invited to company parties. I mean, we come to Vista, I'm still an advisor actually. And I still get invited to their yearly summer party. So I still have a relationship, even though I have no, no stakes anymore. Yeah. But I know many people that work there, and I really love the team, and I think it's an amazing service. So for me, it's still great to, to stay in touch, even though I basically am out of the game Absolutely. On, on a stakeholder basis. I know that you're also very focused on numbers and really good with numbers. Um, are there any numbers that you can share in terms of how many of your cases on the percentage basis were an exit? How many are still alive? How many uh, went bankrupt or didn't make it? Are there any numbers that you can share to you know, put the startup things into reality for aspiring business angels? It's always hard to give statistics on a small sample base. I mean, right. even so, I did more than 20 direct investments. 
I mean, only had one complete loss so far. And I mean, uh, now telling this is the average um, loss ratio uh, would, of course, be wrong. I have some starters which don't go very well in the sense that they don't really grow. And it's not obvious if they can be sold, uh, but they still have money in the bank. They maybe in two years, it looks very different. I don't know. Um, so it's really hard to say. I mean, in U.S., there were studies uh, across more than 10,000 business angels where they found out if you have more than 10 investments, chances are extremely low that you basically lose your, your complete investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's really like in, in the, the very small digits that you could lose everything because diversification basically pays it back. Right. But, I mean, these are American numbers. Now it's a different ecosystem there. It's really hard to say. They also say that normally 10% of your portfolio pays back the other 90%, which means you need to have one or two home runs, which give you at least a 10x in value, 10 mm-hmm. times what you invest. Uh, this is so-called portfolio series, but the, the question is always what is the, the, the numbers that you use for that. And in Switzerland, there's very little numbers known from angel investors because most people don't uh, report them. And so it's hard to say what the, the real failure rates are. What I know is from ETH spin-offs, um, they have a survival rate after five years of 85%. So only 15% of ETH spin-offs go bankrupt within the first five years. In Silicon Valley, I heard it's the opposite. 15% survive and 85 go bankrupt, apparently. Or maybe 20% survive. But it's really like, in Switzerland, most startups are more sturdy. They, 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 they try to, to really um, survive for longer. Even sometimes when they can't grow anymore, they rather don't want to shut down. Yeah. Now, for the investor, that's also not a good deal because then your money is blocked and the startup still uh, needs your attention, but maybe you get never anything back. Um, but it's more the mindset here that you are not allowed to fail. Yeah. I think failure culture, that's a big issue for Europeans uh, that, that feel they are not allowed to fail and they feel they cannot learn from failures. Whereas in other countries, uh, if you fail, you've learned something, next time you do it better. So, I mean, if you cannot fail, then you don't want to shut down. That's why you have a walking dead. (laughs) And that's that's not a good situation because it eats the founder's time. And uh, as an investor, you will basically have an investment, but you don't really get anything out of it. Your time could probably be spent much wiser than that, than riding the dead horse. I mean, especially for the founder. I feel if they they have potential, they should rather do something different where they can start from scratch than just trying to keep it alive by making it look like it's a success, but it's not. Absolutely. Um, one last question in that regard about becoming a business angel. Can you actually earn enough money to you know, finance your life and, and do that full-time and really be a business angel full-time? I guess I'm an example for that. <laughs> uh, you can, but you, you cannot plan uh, when you will get the first uh, exit. Now, if you're lucky and get quick exits, uh, suddenly... Uh, you can refinance everything, um, but if it takes much longer than, than in the cases I had, then maybe it doesn't work because uh, nobody can wait for 10 years before they get the first exit because then you need to prefinance 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so basically, I wouldn't plan for that. Uh, and of course, you can always have things that compensate for it. I mean, in addition to being uh, an investor, you could also have um, a day job, which basically pays you at least uh, what you need. Uh, I wouldn't just um, hope that it will be fast and then you can refinance everything. Of course, if you have a really large exit, then suddenly your options are much more diverse. You can invest much more. Uh, you can spend your time more freely. Um, but at the same, same, same time, it's very rare that you have a large exit very quickly. It happens, but it's rare. Yeah, so I wouldn't plan for it. 
And maybe not to close the circle, why are business angels so important for the startup ecosystem from your perspective? So let's assume there were no business angels. So there are startup founders, they want to incorporate the business. And now where would they get the first funding from? I mean, there's the, the friends and family thing, but basically they're also like angels because um, they're not professionals, but they, they only invest a very little very little amount in, into these startups. And it's normally not enough to, to build something which is good enough for a professional investor because they normally want to see 1 million of um, turnover a year. The best thing would be recurring. They want to see a real product, real customers, and a real team, which means like um, not just one person or two persons, um, maybe five or ten. But they rather want to see the numbers saying that you have revenues um, which are growing and hopefully more than a million. Otherwise, they say for them it's too risky to give you money. Banks don't give you money because uh, you're not credible as a young startup, because you don't have a track record. Investors don't give you money because you're too tiny and you don't want to invest in too tiny startups, so you need to grow. And you cannot grow without the funding, which means either you can finance it yourself because you uh, were really lucky, for example, you had a great uncle, but he died and now you have the money. That would maybe be a start. Um, but if you don't get that, but then the uncle would indirectly make you yourself a business angel. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but normally that's not the case. And so that's why you... Um, you basically, for getting this money, it's, it's one of the only ways to get it. And in addition, it's not just the money. Maybe you also get some experience from others that already had success with being an entrepreneur. And then you avoid a lot of costly mistakes, which means in the end, you need less money to get where you want to. And uh, this is basically this, this role in between the professional investors and uh, yourself with your family, which there's a gap. And if it's not filled, most people would never start. Uh, because they, they cannot uh, work for free for, for five years until a VC would like them. And the risk would be too high. That's also why they would hesitate to even uh, dare it. True. So I feel business angels give you the, somewhat of a safety net and give you the incentive and um, also or like a friend and coach that holds your hand such that you actually do it. Yeah. I think that that's the, the right sweet spot in, in between there. And also what I really admire is, you know, like people from Contavista, but also you yourself included, there were exits and then you switched aside and actually became a business angel to, or business investor again, uh, angel investor, yes. uh, to really support the next generation with your experience, with your advice, but also with money. And I think that's incredibly important for the startup ecosystem because you then have sort of a multiplier effect to really have ideally more and more exits and then more and more investors on the other side and then that just gets stronger and stronger. I mean, I really hope for many large exits in Switzerland where people that receive the money stay in Switzerland afterwards. Yeah. Because if you have done it yourself, you know the whole ecosystem and you want to help others and you now have suddenly the, the superpowers to do so, I mean, that's really helping the ecosystem. Absolutely. And we're working on that, um, having more and larger <laughs> exits. And yeah, I think it would be super positive for the ecosystem. Are there any additional resources that you can recommend to aspiring business angels where they can read or listen or watch more about that topic and get started? I mean, currently I'm finishing up the Swiss Angel Investor Handbook, which we publish before end of this year, together with some resources like templates for financial planning, due diligence checklist, all of that. Nice. So we'll announce that very broadly together with many other angel clubs that will also make this available for free. Um, so it's basically a summary of, of everything I learned on my journey, uh, together with lots of other great inputs from my colleagues. 
and make it readable in a handbook style and we'll give this out to whoever wants to learn about angel investing. It's also for founders that want to understand <laughs> what angels should know right. <laughs> uh, to just help them a little bit to understand uh, the angel investor world. Um, so that's a contribution I make. Um, it's a lot of time I invest in this project, but I feel it's really hard to find information which is specific for Switzerland. I mean, you find a lot of American literature, uh, but many of the things um, that are specific here, you don't find them well documented. And so hopefully this is a contribution to get other people started faster to become angel investors. And uh, yeah, we want to not earn money with that. We just want to make this available to uh, improve um, the situation for angels that uh, need too much time currently to really get into it. And with this, hopefully they have a faster ramp up. I think that's a great spirit. And before we conclude that episode, we do have some rapid fire questions for you. Yes, looking forward to we start with the first one, Europe, China, or United States? I think for scaling up a startup very quickly, you, United States is the best place. Europe, I think, is the best in terms of loyalty of people. Mm-hmm. And with, with China, I think, uh, it's, it's, in the end, it's a numbers game. It's a very large market, but also a very difficult market. Yeah. And if you had to make one choice to start a startup, where would you go? I mean, I would go where my network is, and that's for sure in Europe. Makes sense. What's your favorite or your best investment? I mean, best in terms of uh, returns. That's definitely Conta Vista so far. Mm-hmm. Working on others where returns could be higher, but they don't <laughs> haven't done an exit yet. Uh, in, in terms of people, I think all the people that I love to work with in the board, I mean, they inspire me so much. Uh, I couldn't say this is the best team because I feel many of those people inspire me so much that... Uh, it would be wrong to say this is the only one, but I work with lots of really great, inspiring people and I love it every day. Nice. Wealth or happiness? Yeah, of course, happiness. Why? Yeah, you get born without wealth and you die and can't take the wealth with you, but if you're happy, you have a good life. Nice. What makes you smile? I think when I, I see the fire in the eyes of the entrepreneurs and when I see that they really, they, they live for this thing. Nice. Business angel, VC money, or bootstrapping? I think it's a combination of all that you need. I mean, VC money is great if you need a lot of funding, but it's a different relationship with investors um, versus with angels. So you can actually turn uh, investors into friends. And if that happens, I think it's, it's wonderful. Nice. And one that I have to ask you, Apple or Google? I think I have a MacBook, so I love the hardware that Apple does. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I use lots of Google services like Google Search, of course, and uh, the G Suite tool uh, because I really, uh, found them very efficient. And the last one for today, where do you go to think? Normally, I, I try to just not get disturbed when I think. I can think anywhere. I just want to make sure I don't get disturbed. Uh, it can be in my home office, uh, can be in nature. Uh, doesn't really matter. As long as I know I don't get disturbed for half an hour or more, then I can really go into deep thinking. Nice. Thomas, thank you so much for sharing your journey and also telling us how to become a business angel. I think that was incredibly valuable knowledge and hopefully we can motivate more people to take that path and start investing into startups. Thank you so much for your time and the insights and all the best, lots of success and hopefully many more exits. Thanks. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business. 
the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.